right, guys. All right, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to start in John chapter 13 this morning. We're going to be looking at a very interesting uh, passage that I, I hope and pray that you will find not only challenging but encouraging. And uh, as we look at the example that the Lord Jesus set before us and his disciples, and we've been just talking about all of these encounters with Jesus, um, how when we meet Jesus and we encounter him, not just initially, but in, in, a, in a real personal way, on an ongoing basis in our relationship with him, he should change us. Um, having that interaction with, with the Lord Jesus, with our creator, our redeemer, he's our savior, and all of those things. But those, those in, in encounters and interactions with a living God, the risen one, that, that there should do something in our hearts and our life that changes us and makes us more like him. I think if there's one goal that God has in your life that I can definitively say beyond a shadow of a doubt is that he wants you and me to become more like who? Like him. God desires for us to grow, to to. to mature, uh, the Bible talks about us being conformed, to be transformed into the image and likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The, the difficult part with that is that can be a very hard process. It's not always easy. Where do we, let's just be honest, when do we experience God the most? Is it on the mountaintop or in the valley? It really is, isn't it? When we're on the mountaintop and everything's going great, thank God for those times, by the way. I'm, I'm not... I'm not, I'm not going to begrudge that at all, but thank God. But when, we're, when things are going great and we're on the mountaintop and everything's good in our life, we're just kind of coasting along, sometimes it's easy to forget about him. Sometimes we, we, can, we can just kind of put God on the back burner and we don't really need him at that moment. But it's when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you're in the midst of the, the dark night of the soul and, and, and all of the struggle and the suffering and the pain and the loss and the, the hurt and the darkness and that's when we need him the most. That's when we cry out to him the most. And honestly, that's probably where we grow the most. That's when we're going to grow the most. And so this idea of us encountering Jesus, and, and today I, I pray that we'll all have a better perspective, not just in our head, but it'll get into your heart, and eventually it'll come out in, in our hands in, in the way that we actually live and, and, and conduct ourselves. In this world. And so the encounter with Jesus today in John chapter 13 is that Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve. So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's take a look at um, John 13. And I'm just going to read through uh, several verses here and then we'll unpack them a little bit together. John chapter 13. And understand this is this, is, uh, this upper room discourse this is the time that Jesus is he's, he's nearing his his death he's nearing the time when he knows he's about to go to the cross and he has this this opportunity here right before Passover to have this encounter with his disciples to teach them a lesson to show them to give them an example um, remember these are the same disciples that were arguing with each other along the way about who was going to be the what the greatest in the kingdom right 
Well, I want to be at his right hand. Well, I want to be at his left hand. And, and, and even James and John's mother got involved, and she came to him and was like, hey, Jesus, you think in your kingdom, like, one, I'll have one son on this side and one son on this side. And, you know, obviously they're the most qualified to sit, you know, in these positions of power and leadership. They're fighting and they're mad at each other over these things. And Jesus is like, hold on a second. I need to set you, I need to give you an example about what it really means to be in the kingdom. What does it mean to be a kingdom citizen, a child of God? And so here we pick up here. It says, before the feast of Passover in John chapter 13, it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, I love this, he loved them to the end. Oh, thank you, Lord. He never stops. He doesn't give up. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, well, if I do not wash you, then you have no share, no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put, out his, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then you... Excuse me, if then, if your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking... Of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's, uh, let's take a minute, let's just pause, and let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for these examples, these encounters, to remind us to stay humble, to give us perspective, to keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves, which is so easy and unfortunately natural to do. And Lord, the greatest thing that we can do based on this passage is not just to be hearers of the word, Lord, but to do them, to put them into practice in a practical way. And I do pray for our church, Lord, that we would continue to serve others. We would continue to 
make a difference in the lives of those around us through the example that you set so that they would see genuine, sincere love, um, humility, kindness, and that that would be what draws them to you. And I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are experiencing in our culture a phenomenon that can be popularly described as the selfie culture. We live in an entire generation now that has never known life apart from the digital world of social media. Think about that for a second. My generation, I was born in 1978, still a child of the 70s. I'm so thankful that I grew up before the internet explosion, smartphones. I feel like I still had at least somewhat of a childhood. But my children, many of your grandchildren and children, they do not know what life is like apart from the digital world of technology and social media and the internet, smartphones. And part of the result and part of the consequence of that is that this generation no longer knows how to communicate with things like handshakes, making what? Eye contact with someone, having engaged conversations around the table, the simple things that we have always done in human history because we had to. We didn't have any other entertainment or distractions, so we would entertain ourselves and we would talk or we would read or play games or do cards or go outside or do all of these things that, that I think is healthy that you're supposed to do. But, but now communication has changed fundamentally for this next generation. Now almost all communication is exclusively through social media platforms, text messages, chats, you know, direct messages, videos, posts, and all of the virtual things that we all are very aware of now. Even if you're my age or older and you've kind of adopted some of these things, there's still nothing, um, the, 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 the influence of those things are nothing compared to the influence of the children that have grown up with this technology. It is just as much a part of their life as anything else. Now, I wanted to think about that for just a second. Let's think about how Jesus showed up. We, what do we call, does anybody know, what do, you, what do we call the, the, the virgin birth or when Jesus was born into the world? It's a word that we've used a lot before. You've probably heard it. It's called the incarnation. You've heard that right, the incarnation. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came in the what? In the flesh. Now, what if Jesus had just sent us a direct message from heaven and said, hey, I love you. I really care a lot about you guys, you know, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming down there or anything, but I just want you to know that, hey, give me a bunch of likes and we're, we're on good terms, right? Like, that's just not the way that Jesus chose to operate, right? He, he came, he decided that he made a decision. He said, I'm going to step out of heaven. I'm going to step out of the glory afforded to me as the son of God, the eternal creator of the universe, and I'm going to enter into this world that I created, and I'm coming in the what? In incarnationally, in the flesh. Because God knows us more than anybody else, and he knows that we needed a, a savior that was relational. 
that we could see and touch and feel and talk to and walk with. And, and thank, man, the disciples got to experience all that. What a privilege they had to be able to be there alive at that time when they could be with Jesus and give him a hug and share a meal with him and, and listen to him and talk to him and walk with him and all of those amazing things. But because Jesus decided to come in the flesh, he set the example, he set the pattern of what it means to have relationships, healthy relationships. Guys, today, unfortunately, our children are growing up in a culture that is less and less and less incarnational. It's all virtual now. And that's sad. And it's dangerous. And there's a lot of detrimental effects that come along with that. You see, what happens when you grow up on social media or that becomes your primary means of, of influence and communication is that social media breeds an unnatural and an unhealthy obsession with our self, with ourselves. That's what it does. That's why we live in the selfie generation, the selfie cultures, because people become so self-conscious. They become so self-focused. They become self-absorbed. They're always constantly worried about their social media profiles and their social media status and their likes and their perceived popularity and all of those things. And what's happening is that you have an entire generation measuring its worth Children measuring their worth by their social media status, and it's in a self-promoting virtual reality. Now, I know in some sense it is real, but let's just be honest, it is really not reality. Because you can become anybody that you want to be on this platform, and you can let people see only what they, what, only what you want them to see, and you can put your, your face out there, Right? This, this identity, this virtual identity, and that may have nothing to do with really who you are as a person. Sociologists and psychologists have written extensively about the negative effects of social media and the influence in the selfie generation, the selfie culture. Here, just, here are some of the things that are happening to our children and grandchildren as a result of this culture that they live in. This Culture, this virtual, self-promoting, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-conscious platform, reality, whatever you want to call it, it breeds insecurity, anxiety, negativity, depression, isolation, emotional detachment, social dysfunction. You ever notice how kids today have a, they have a much more difficult time socially interacting with people just on a, in a normal level. I can't tell you how many children today that I talk to, they, they don't even know how to look you in the eye anymore. A misplaced identity, that's one of the, the negative effects, and then, let's just be honest, just narcissism. Just self-absorbed, self-centeredness, whatever it may be. Those are just some of the detrimental effects, some of the negative consequences that we have because of the generation in which we live. Now, I have children, and I have children that have grown up in this generation that have continued to navigate the social media. We, we decided years ago, my wife and I, we, you know, we, we said, okay, at certain such, such age, we're going to allow our children to, to have access to these things when we feel like they're 
mature enough or when they're, they're out and about enough to where we, we want to stay in touch with them, know where they are, you know, check in with them, whatever it may be. And, and the way that we landed on it, I'm not telling you that it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying we knew that our, this was going to be a part of their lives no matter what. So you can either keep all of this out of your kid's life completely and totally to where they have no access to internet, no access to social media, no access to smartphones, and when they, return, when they turn 18, 19 years old, they move out of your house, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to go get one. And they're not, they're not going to have any idea what in the world they're getting themselves into. So we decided, you know, the way we approached it was, okay, let's try to teach them how to use this technology and how to use it in a, in a godly and a, in a responsible way and, and, and all of those kind of things. Has it been perfect? No. But we're doing the best to navigate it even as parents. So I don't even necessarily blame the children. I don't. I put a lot of responsibility on who? On the parents. How are you allowing your kids to interact with this technology? And so it made me think about a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read this, and I just want you to hear what Paul says about the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, it says verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, swollen with conceit, narcissism, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, Paul, I know that there's nothing new under the sun. I realize that. What has been will be again. I know that we've always had sin and narcissism and self-centeredness and all that kind of stuff. From the beginning that sin entered into the world all the way up until now, there, there's really truly nothing new under the sun. But Paul tells us that in the last days, these things were going to get what? They're going to get worse, more pervasive. And I think that we're probably witnessing some of that right now. And so when we look at a passage like John 13 and we look at the example that Jesus set for us, I want to encourage you that Jesus gives us a remedy. He's given us a remedy for all of this. Which is why, personally, when I think about our children's ministry, our student ministry, which I'm going to be honest with you guys, um, just to be frank, we're struggling here. We're struggling with adequate partnerships in the ministries and volunteers. We're struggling with, with keeping our kids and our parents involved. We're, we're, we're struggling on a lot of different levels. It's, it's a very difficult ministry, but it's one that we have got to keep fighting for. It's one that we can never give up on because our children and our grandchildren need this. They need Christ more than ever. Because left in and of themselves, left to themselves in this generation, in this culture... I'm telling you, it is very, very discouraging. It looks like, man, I don't have a whole lot of hope for this next generation unless somehow along the way they encounter who? They encounter Jesus. Now, can they encounter Jesus on TikTok? Maybe. What are the chances? Probably not very good. 
So how are we going to step into this role of teaching our children and our grandchildren? And it's going to start with us. It's going to start with the church. It's going to start at home. It's going to start with the families. We're going to talk all about that now. But Jesus does have the answer. He is the answer. So let's look at Jesus in this passage, and let's go over three very simple points I think are going to be encouraging to us today. The first one is this, is that the, the example that Jesus gives us, the Son of God, remember, stepped out of heaven. He came into the world. He came to serve, not to be served. That ought to be indication number one right there. I mean, let's just stop and think for one second. If anybody has the right to come to this earth and demand that every single person that they encounter immediately bows down and serves them, who had that right? Jesus has that right. And yet when we look at the example and the model that he set before us, he did the exact opposite. He does the, exact, he does the one thing that nobody else would ever have imagined, and I guarantee you none of us would have done if we were in his position. Because Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve. So in this example, as we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, we see him demonstrating the greatest example of humility and service that the world has ever seen, especially when we consider who was serving and how he served. Remember, who are we talking about? We're talking about the king of glory, the creator of the universe the Son of God, the God of heaven. We're talking about the greatest, most conceivable, inconceivable being in the entire universe. The most powerful, holy, pure. I mean, his attributes go on and on and on and on and on. We're talking about the king of glory. And I want you to think about no human king that I'm aware of. There may have been some in history. Who knows? There may have been a, there a humble king out there somewhere. I don't know. I don't have any record of it. But if we look at just human kings, for example, no human king would ever have conceived of taking off his royal garments, taking on the role or the form of one of his servants, and getting down on his knees out in the streets, the nasty, dirty, filthy streets of his kingdom, and begin washing the filthy feet of his subjects. No king would have done that. It's inconceivable. So when we look at feet washing, and and you guys probably have heard this before, but we're talking about a climate, a very dirty, dusty climate. People are wearing sandals. They walk everywhere that they go by, you know, for much of the time, if not all the time. And so you can imagine that people's feet got pretty what? Pretty nasty. Pretty filthy. And so most people, if you could afford servants, if you could have indentured servants in your household, the lowest, most insignificant servant in your household was given that one unwanted task. It's like uh, Michael, is the guy named Mike Ross, the guy that has those show Dirty Jobs. Have you ever seen that? You know, he goes and does the most, you know, the, 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 the jobs that nobody else wants to do, right? Well, it's kind of like that. This is the job that nobody else wanted to do. So if you were the lowest on the totem pole in the household, you were the most insignificant servant in the house, you had this assignment that you would have to sit at the door, and as the guests came into the house, your job was to take water and to wash those dirty, nasty feet. It was a very humiliating job. And so you look at this passage of Scripture 
All of the disciples have gathered in the upper room. This is before Passover, so they're, they're, they're spending a time together. They're sharing a meal together. And it just so happens that it seems like nobody else in the room had volunteered to do what? To wash anybody else's feet. Notice that, right? Probably hadn't even crossed their mind. They're just like, well, there's no servant here to wash our feet, so I guess we're just not going to have our feet washed tonight. We're just going to go ahead and lounge and have, you know, and have dirty feet. Nobody else, it didn't cross their mind to take up the, the towel and to get the water basin and begin washing their feet. And so here we see Jesus coming to serve. He, he, he's, he's the son of God and he's turning this entire system on its head. He just, he just kind of blows the whole thing up when he reverses the whole perspective of reality because if anybody in that room did not need or did not, should not have been washing the other people's feet in, in our minds and their minds, it was Jesus. Because they're at this point, they're, they're beginning to believe that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. They're beginning to understand, wait a minute, he is somebody special. He is the King of Israel. And yet here he goes, taking up a towel and washing their feet. Mark 10, 42, again, it says this. That Jesus called his disciples together. He said, he said, you know that those regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their superiors exercise authority over them, but it shall not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're born into a world and into a system that teaches the exact opposite of what Jesus just said. The world that we grow up in, the world, the, the message that the world is sending us today, sending you and me and our children and everybody else, and we're being programmed to believe this, is that get yours while you can. Just do you. You deserve to be happy. Anybody hearing those messages today? Do whatever it takes to get what you want. Promote yourself. Advance yourself at all costs. Don't let anything holding you back hold you back from reaching the top. And there's, a, there's another thing that I hear a lot, and I think that it's, it's taken out of context or it's at least misunderstood, is that, is that you've got to love yourself first. Now, is there, is there truth to that? I want to I qualify that statement for just a second. Jesus said... Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there is a concept that if I love myself, in other words, if I do the basic things in life to take care of myself emotionally and physically and spiritually and mentally, I should take care of myself. Because if I'm not any good for myself, I'm not any good for who? Anybody else. So there is a concept that we need to love ourselves in that sense. But that's not what the message that the world is sending out. The world is sending out a different message that's basically saying that you deserve to be happy no matter what. No matter what it costs you or anybody else or anybody that you may you know, step on, on the, along the way, it's basically saying you've got to put yourself first above everybody else. And I think that that's a very complicated, confusing message to send. 
See, the world says whatever you can do to your advantage to reach the top, to be the best, no matter how many people you have to beat or abuse or step on or cheat or blackmail or ignore or manipulate or even lie about, doesn't matter what it takes. There is no right or wrong. It's just about self-promotion, self-advancement. What can I do to better me? And so the world's definition of reaching the top or being your best, it is in direct contradiction to God's idea of what it means to be great. Because what did Jesus just tell us? He said, for those of you who want to be what? Great in the kingdom, you must become a servant. A servant. And so Jesus gives us the example for what real leadership looks like. Leadership is not abusing your power. It's not... Um, abusing your position over other people. It's not taking advantage of other people to get what you want. It's not about demanding to be served by others. It's not putting your wants and your felt needs above everyone else. True leadership is about the willingness that we have to humble ourselves and serve our neighbor. To serve our neighbor. Paul said it this way, do not let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not look out, excuse me, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So again, he's not saying that we shouldn't look out for our own interests. That's that's clearly part of the equation But he's also telling us to exalt and to esteem others better than ourselves. So there's a a balance here of what it means to follow the example that Jesus said. He said, let this be mine be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very, whose very nature is God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. Coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and eventually to give his life. The second thing that we see in this passage is that we're never more like the devil than we are, when we are proud and self-serving. Did you pick up on what was happening there in the first few verses with Judas? You see, Judas, notorious, the one who betrayed Jesus. But see, Judas had, he had compromised so many times along the way that he left his entire self open to the influence of who? Of the devil. He was wide open. Because he had made all these compromises and he, and he was more concerned about what he wanted, what he thought Jesus was supposed to be or do. And because of that, he was vulnerable to under, for spiritual attack. And it says the devil himself entered into Judas. This man was possessed by Satan. And so he was going to do what the devil was going to encourage him and influence him and control him to do. Look at what it says. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose 
and that is when he took up these garments. Now, here's something I want to just pose to you. Who was included in that group of people that had their feet washed by Jesus? You ever think about that? Here is Jesus, the Son of God, fully aware of what Judas is conspiring to do. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's betraying him. He's already struck a deal with the, with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Did that stop Jesus from washing his feet? Wow. Think about that. Unbelievable. And so we need to understand that the, the polar opposite, the direct um, you know, contradiction to a serving, humble, self-sacrificial life is that we are most more like Satan when we're proud and when we're self-serving. So the thing is, that we, here's what we know about Satan. Satan is a liar. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He steals and kills and destroys. He is the great arch enemy of God and his people, but let's make no mistake about it. The devil's original sin was, anybody know? Pride. He was proud. See, Satan refused to humble himself to serve because he was this created, the most beautiful, full of wisdom. We're going to read that in just a second, but we see Satan as this amazing, angelic being that was created to serve God and to serve humanity. Because we learn from the scriptures that angels, part of their job description is that they are supposed to be ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. In other words, God has given angels a role and a responsibility in this great, the grand scheme of things that they are to minister to who? To us. That whole idea of guardian angels and protective angels, that's a biblical idea. Jesus was ministered to by angels on many different occasions. And so the angelic order and the angelic realm, they were given this job description is that, yes, you are higher in a sense that they're, they're a different race of being than we are, and they're a little bit higher maybe from an uh, intellectual standpoint, maybe their, their powers and their attributes are a little bit greater than ours are, but God set them up to be our what? Our servants. Satan said, I ain't having none of it. Look at me. He got a little bit too uh, attracted to himself when he was looking in the what? In the mirror. Man, I'm the most beautiful of all God's creatures. I'm full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. And nobody, nobody compares to me. And he was right. But when it came down to it, he was unwilling to do the job that God gave him to do, which was, be, which was to serve mankind who was made a little lower than the angels. And he said, no, 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 that's not the way it's supposed to work. They are the ones that should be what? Serving me. I deserve to be worshipped and glorified. And that's where sin was found in the heart of the devil because of what? Pride. It's all about pride. Let me share with you a couple of passages. Uh, if you want to, flip with me real quick. Let's go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. Look at this. Ezekiel 28. I believe these are definitely descriptions of the devil or the Satan or the dragon or whatever you want to call him, his, uh, his, his names. In Ezekiel 28, I'm, I'm going to read, look at verse 14. It says, you were anointed... 
You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. Uh, if you back up to verse 12, it, it talks about you were, you were the sign of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. What was his sin? Satan's sin was pride. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence, and in the midst you sinned. He says, so I cast you, verse 16, I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, a guardian cherub, in the midst of stones of fire. Look at what it says in verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Here we see Satan, once in close proximity to God, falling because of pride. Isaiah 14, I'll read this, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Notice how many times in this passage, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Satan said what? I will. I will. I'll rise above everybody else. I'll make myself as high as God. I will be the one who d demands worship and and glory from all other creatures in the universe. I will, I will, I will. What did Jesus say in the garden? Heavenly Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But what? Your will. Your will be done. Not what? Not my will. You see, that's the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And what's sad, and I look at my own life, is that how many times in my life have I been more like the devil? Acted more like him out of pride and self-service than I did like Jesus Christ out of humility and self-sacrifice. It's so easy, guys, to become proud. And so because Satan refused to humble himself and he envied mankind... And he desired to be served and worshipped rather than to serve. He, he wanted to rob God of his glory. You see, this pride was at the heart of the sin and the root cause for his fall. And make no mistake about it, that the same thing goes for you and me. Because the Bible makes it clear that pride comes before our fall. And a haughty spirit before destruction. And so we have these... These two polar opposing perspectives and attitudes, one of Jesus who, who had every right to demand to be worshipped as the Son of God, the creator of the universe, and yet he came to be served, not to serve. He came humble, he came as a servant, he came to give his life, and then you have Satan, the devil, on this side who had, demands to be worshipped. He tried to steal that which didn't belong to him. He was filled with envy and pride, and, ev and eventually it, it led to his destruction and his downfall, which is not complete yet, but it will be soon. 
And unfortunately, when we look at ourselves and, and we examine our lives, is that we're going to be one or the other. We're going to be more like the, the, the Lord Jesus in, in our attitude of our heart of humility, or we're going to be more like the devil in pride. And so here's the last thing I want to I want to share with you guys because I think this is kind of where I want to just get down to the very heart of what my heart is saying as as a pastor in a in a church in 2023 in a selfie generation is that the kingdom of God is made manifest in the world when the children of God this is the key word demonstrate the humble heart of Jesus Christ so the kingdom of God is made manifest in this world, when we demonstrate this humility, this heart of Christ in the world. So let me ask you a question. How would, I, how would we like to see these seats full of young people? I think everybody in here would be like, man, that would be awesome, right? And do you ever find yourself standing around knocking yourself on the head and saying, how are we going to reach this generation? What are we going to do? Do we need to have bit more lights? Do we need to have louder music? Do we need to have a, a do we need to get rid of all this green carpet and put something else in here? You ain't never heard that one before, right? You know, what is it gonna take? Do we need to have more kids' programs or more fun stuff for the kids to do or or food or games or let's do a big video game set up in this in this church and by goodness we'll always get the kids in here to come play video games. Now what are we gonna do to reach the next generation? I think it's very, very simple. We got to serve people. We've got to serve our fellow man. We've got to serve the next generation. We've got to serve our neighbors. That's the only way, in my estimation, that we're going to overcome this selfie generation, this selfie culture, is to genuinely demonstrate the love of God in this world in practical ways. This is the greatest way we can reflect the kingdom and, more importantly, to reflect the king. Because remember, if we're to be example followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, he told us, I'm doing this, I'm washing your feet to set a what? An example for you. I'm willing to humble myself in the lowest form of a, of a servant to wash your dirty feet, even though I have every right not to do this, just like we may feel like we have every right not to serve our neighbor, whatever that may be. But Jesus is telling us, listen, if you will follow my example, this is how you get people's attention. This is how you demonstrate the genuine love of God to a lost and dying world. This is how you show a self-centered, self-absorbed, self-advancing, self-promoting generation what it really means to be somebody who serves, who understands God's heart. That's what this generation needs more than anybody else, that we need to be willing to serve our neighbor and serve our fellow man. And never forget, who is your neighbor? So in our mind, when we say neighbor, sometimes we think about our, the strangers out there, maybe people that live down the street or people you bump into at the grocery store. That's, those are potential neighbors, but who is your most immediate neighbor? The people that live in your own what? All right, Christian, let's ask ourselves this question. How are you serving your family right now? Let's talk to the men in the house for a minute. Men, how are you serving your wives, your children? Do 
and come home from work and just say, you know what, I've had a long day at work, I'm tired, you know what, I'm just going to check out, I just want to get on my couch and zone out, I don't want to have to do anything else, think about anything else, and what do you think your, your wife's been doing all day? Taking care of the kids, maybe going to her own job. I mean, the thing about it is, guys, is that we need to understand that it's going to start right in the places where we have the people that are closest to us, the ones that we love the most, our family, our friends, our church family. And let me give you a big pat on the back, Christ Church. Because even though our numbers are not where we would hope them to be, or we, we're maybe we're not seeing the, 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 the church filled up today, I'm going to tell you about the people that are in this room and the people that are faithful at this church. You are a serving church. You are. I mean, we've got mercy ministry going on with our help group. Y'all understand, help group doesn't just happen on the third Saturday when everybody shows up. You know what they're doing in here on Mondays and Tuesdays and Thursdays? Guess what they're doing? Going through all the food, going to pick, get deliveries from all these grocery stores, going in here, sorting the food, packaging them up, sorting them out, doing what they need to do. We have people that do that every single day just about this week, of the week. Our Jackson Avenue crew that goes out every single Sunday to go meet people where they are and to serve them in the name of Jesus, give them a hot meal, love on them in the name of Jesus, try to provide some basic essentials for them. We have a very serving church. Most of the people in our church, they're serving in some level or capacity. That's why it's hard for me to get up here and, and beat on you to say we need more people to serve because most of you here, I do think, are what? You're already what? You're already serving somewhere. So you do serve your church. You do serve your home. You serve the ones that, that you love. You serve the people in your workplace. Students, you serve the other students in your school. I went to share with the FCA the other day at the Ninth Grade Academy here in Bartlett. And that, this is the message that I sent them. I said, you're the FCA. You're the fellowship of what? Christian athletes. I said, so what does the rest of the school think about you? When they think about the FCA, what do they think about you? It's a legitimate question. You're supposed to represent who? Christ. And so I challenged them. I said, are you serving your other students? Are you serving your fellow students? Because I don't know any other way, guys, we're going to reach the next generation. I don't know any other way we're going to reach the, the people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates. I don't see it happening any other way than if we will humble ourselves. And let me tell you something about serving other people. You do not have to have a lot of talent. You don't have to have a college degree or some, time of, some, some kind of a theological education to look around and see with your own very eyes that there's a need out there somewhere. There's somebody right here that could use a hand. There's somebody here that could use a door to be open for them. Just a smile. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's just a simple act or a gesture of kindness or whatever it may be. But it doesn't take much for us to look around us and see that there are needs everywhere. The problem is, are we willing to step in and meet those needs. Because they're everywhere. There are opportunities abound for us to be like Christ. James says, what good is it, brothers, if anybody claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you tells him, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed but does not provide for his physical needs, what good is that? So too, faith by itself, it does not result in action, is dead. What we're talking about, guys, is love in action. Love in action. 
there are so many ways for us to demonstrate the love of God. Humbling ourselves, serving other people, giving of ourselves, sacrificing if necessary. And I really believe, guys, that if we're willing to do that individually, we do it pretty well as a church. We can probably do better, but individually, in your homes, with your neighbors, at your schools, at your workplace, are we going to do those things so that they come here to Christ Church? No. That's not the motivation. Why should we do those things to other people? Because it was the example that Christ set for us. Because it's not about building Christ church. Your life is here to build the what? The kingdom of God. So if people in this world see that this is a genuine Christian who loves me and they care about me and they're not, they're not trying to get anything from me, they just want to be kind to me and they want to serve me and they're humble and they're considerate and they, and they stepped in and helped me when I needed help and I didn't even ask them to, that's the... And that's the the um, picture, that's the, the demonstration of Jesus that they're going to get. And guess what? They're going to want to know who this Jesus really is. That's how we begin to make a difference in this world. So that we can really hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, do it. well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm going to ask our, our praise team to come up as we get ready to sing our last song. And guys, you know, it's probably nothing that's going to happen overnight. Start in your homes. Children, serve your parents. Parents, serve your children. Wives, serve your husbands. Husbands, serve your wives. Serve your neighbors. Look for opportunities. Do it at your workplace. However it is that you can find ways and opportunities to be an example, to demonstrate the love of Christ in practical ways, and it takes a tremendous amount of humility, but it's not hard. It's not hard. So here's your takeaway, guys. Be doers of the word. Remember, love is an action. Be doers of the word. As you show genuine love for your neighbor, Following this example that Christ has set before us, we do this both with humility and willingness to serve others. <coughs> Guys, I don't really know what else we can do. We got our work cut out for us. But Jesus gave us the formula. And it's not hard. And I just want to encourage you today to please consider how you can take this message into your life as you leave this place starting today, and put it in practice. And let's just see what God can do. Amen? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this example of humility. Lord, we, we thank you for being willing to give of yourself to show us, Lord, what it really means to demonstrate humility and and love for our neighbor, Lord, and, and forgive us for all the times that we become proud or self-seeking or self-centered. And Lord, have mercy on this generation, Lord, that just needs to see godly examples. And it starts with us. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would go and put your word into practice. That we can make a difference in this world for the kingdom. 
and that you'll take care of all the rest, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.